You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. All right, Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, and, the people, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount... The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. And rose up to play. Look down in verse 17. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he, that's Moses, said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Tonight, if I was to title the message, I would probably title Music Worthy of God. Music Worthy of God. The first two messages that we've, we've had on the last two Sunday nights um, have been, the first one was out of 2 Corinthians 5, and how we started by saying that music is not about our entertainment. And we live in a culture that longs to be entertained. Everyone wants to be entertained and kept kept uh, occupied at all times, but according to 2 Chronicles 5, the music service should be viewed as something with greater possibilities than that. And really, it's not about our entertainment. According to 2 Chronicles 5, the, the music service it has with it as the end the possibility that God can be moved by music. And so therefore, it changes our perspective on the music service in that it's not about us. It's about the Lord. It's, we sing with, with, with making melodies in our hearts to the Lord. Our target, our goal is the Lord. God is our audience. Deuteronomy 6.4 is where we were last week. And um, it, it talks about the Shema, Hero Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart and all thy soul and with all thy might. True religion begins with the right affirmations and it results in the right actions, but it flows from the right affections. And we, and we talked about how when you, you know what you know to be true, and the end result of truth is the, are the right actions. But in the middle of that, we don't want to miss the fact that Moses told the people that we ought to love the Lord our God. So in the middle of what we know to be true and what we do to be true... There is an affection for God. There is love for God. And, and I connected that with the fact that it's okay to have emotion in serving the Lord. Uh, when you consider what God has done for you on the cross, 
if you can consider that and not have emotion, uh, I, I question whether or not you're alive. <laughs> the cross should cause us to be emotional. And so we, what we know about God and what we do for God, the connection there is that we have the right affections. We have the right emotion. We're, we're told to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind. But certain emotions, though, are inappropriate for worshiping God. So be careful not to build religion on the wrong emotions. There are plenty of emotions that wouldn't be appropriate for the house of God. And tonight's message really is a follow-up to that message, but it also connects to the first week. And as I was thinking about how to start it tonight, I, I, I came up where I was thinking about two questions. So I was asking these questions, so I figured I would ask you these questions. And these are hypothetical. I'm not asking for an answer necessarily, but when we gather as a church, should the music reflect us or should it reflect God? When we gather as a church, should the music reflect the tastes or preferences of the people in the pews or should we strive to do our best to use music that we think reflects God himself? The second question then is, is the time of our assembling together about me or is it about him? Is it about me or is it about him? And I think most of us would say that the music in this setting is meant for God if he is our audience. And you know, what, I, what caused me to kind of lead into this tonight is I, I started thinking about everywhere you go in your daily life. Think about everywhere that you go in your daily life. Uh, if you go sit down in a restaurant, what do you hear in the background? Music. Uh, when you go to Walmart, what do you hear in the background besides, besides crying babies? Music. You go to a restaurant, you go to the store, you go to the gas station. If you stop at a stoplight and your windows are down, what do you hear? Music. Everywhere you go in our culture, music is being played. Every store you go into, every establishment, just about all the time, wherever you go, there's music playing. And, and that's okay. You go into a retail store. There's music playing. You go into a restaurant. They're trying to get you to slow down and eat. Or maybe they're trying to get you out the door. So they play some faster music. Shouldn't there be a place then, if everywhere we go reflects music that we like, if everywhere that I go is a reflection of the kind of music that our culture prefers, then my question, the third question I had tonight is, shouldn't there be a place where, the, where God is reflected? How many places in our culture do you go that reflect our Savior? You're not going to stumble across one of those. You're not just going to happen to be at, oh, listen, we're at Walmart and they're playing music that really honors God today. Praise the Lord. You're not going to go to an establishment, a retail store. Now, you, if you do go to Chick-fil-A, they, they play different music there. Um, but I don't think most people even recognize it. It's just instrumental. But it seems logical, though, that there should be a place where you can go and every time you go, you're going to, you know that you're going to hear something that's not reflective of the culture. You're going to go and hear something. There's one place in your daily life or in your weekly life where you can go and you know this is going to be different. It's not going to be like everything else. It seems logical, but honestly, it's becoming rare in today's religious environment. And, and I'm not saying I'm the right guy to define what kind of music 
reflects God. That's not necessarily what I'm trying to do tonight, but I do think it's possible to conclude what kind of music does not reflect God. The music that we hear everywhere we go, if the world is using it, it's likely not because it reflects God. And tonight, like last week, then I, I, I will probably end up being maybe uh, in a, a mindset message. Meaning sometimes you preach messages and, and it's hard. I'm learning as a pastor. It's, it, you know, you kind of want to be careful because you really want to preach a message that people respond to and you want to bring people to a point of decision. But honestly, sometimes you just have to convey a mindset. You have to convey a philosophy. You have to help people to think correctly or, or to think biblically. And so tonight may be more one of those kind of messages. And it started with tonight, Exodus 32, the story of Moses coming down from the mount. Now the golden calf is one of the sadder chapters in, in Israel's history. This account is one of those, those moments where you're thinking, what were you thinking? Moses has been on Mount Sinai for a while, chapter 32 takes place someplace near the end of his 40 days on the mountain. And since he's gone, the people start to get restless. Their leader is gone. And they're, you know, they, they're, they're waiting and waiting. They probably think he's dead. And the irony is, while God is, listen, while God is in the process of giving Moses those written Ten Commandments, the first two of which deal with idolatry, guess what the children of Israel are doing down at the bottom of the mountain with a golden calf? They're building a calf. They're committing idolatry. Now, it's important for us because we can be hard on the, the Israelites, but it's important for us to understand their mentality here. And they still think like Egyptians. It's important for us to understand these people were raised in Egypt. They've lived their whole life in a pagan culture. They think like Egyptians, born and raised. They'd observe the culture, observe the customs. They'd observe the religion of Egypt. They saw Egypt worship numerous gods that were represented by images made of gold or wood. In their mind, that's what religion looks like. This, is, this Egyptian background was the reason God went to such lengths to teach them how he expects him to worship him, who expects them to worship him. Uh, he, if they had been raised in a Jewish culture and from the time they were young, been taught how to worship God properly, you wouldn't have chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Leviticus telling them how to worship God. He had to undo all the things they had learned their entire upbringing in Egypt and start over. It's why he begins the Ten Commandments with, I am the Lord thy God. There's only one. And he says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now this morning when I was talking about jealousy, I was talking about jealousy in the sinful sense of the word. God has a right to be jealous because he's the only one worthy of worship. So if we go and we turn to some other God... We build an idol. Uh, he has a right to be jealous because he's the only one that deserves to be on the throne at the heart of our worship. So God is a jealous God, he says. That's why he had to train them. He had to teach them. And his message is this. There's no God but me. And I cannot be accurately expressed through some image made by the hands of a man. And you think about that. I think it's important for us to understand that God cannot be expressed 
by some man fashioning a piece of wood or a stone or some precious metal into an idol. I don't believe that God's image can even be expressed in a painting. I think, I think we ought to be careful of, of even pictures of Jesus Christ. You and I can't, we can't fashion something that really does justice to his figure, to his, to his image, to his appearance. Yet here's Israel, they're calling on Aaron, Moses' brother, to make an image to represent God. And so Aaron, being the strong spiritual leader that he is, he obliges. And we could read that in, in verses 2 through 5. You know, Aaron said unto them, break off your earrings and all your gold and, and bring them to me. And so they broke, broke them off and brought them to Aaron and he received them. And he fashioned with a graving tool, he made this molten calf. Notice that Aaron calls it a feast though unto the Lord. Look at verse 5. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And I think that, that point is important for us tonight. Because I, I believe that probably many people believe that in Exodus 32, when they built the golden calf, they were trying to worship their Egyptian gods. But what Aaron says is interesting. He said, Tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. It's important for us to understand that because, I mean, I don't know their motives. I'm not sure all that they were thinking. But they, I, what, what seems to me to be what happening here is by Aaron saying, we'll have a feast to the Lord, but we'll use some of your pagan practices to do it. We'll, we'll build a calf like they used to worship in Egypt. We'll build that, but we'll do it and have a feast to the Lord, to Jehovah. Their mistake, though, was assuming that Jehovah was like one of those Egyptian gods that could be accurately depicted in some man-made image. Do you see the difference there? Uh, Aaron is saying this is a feast to the Lord. They're using pagan practices to have a feast to God. In verse 6, uh, look at it. It says, And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Not only did they blaspheme the one true God with an idol, but they celebrated with sacrifices, drunkenness, dancing, immorality, and other pagan rituals. It's like they were taking their practices right out of the Egyptian guidebook to pagan, pagan worship. I mean, they were just, all of the things they had learned, all the things that they had seen, they're now using it even as what Aaron calls in worship to, as a feast to the Lord. They thought the marriage of pagan worship practices and the worship of Jehovah would be okay. Did you catch that? They thought that the marriage of pagan worship practices and the worship of Jehovah bringing those together, they thought that would be okay. But God tells Moses what's happening down at the camp in verse 7, he said, And the Lord, thy, the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I love the language of the Lord here. For thy people. This happens with, in child rearing sometimes. She'll bring Jace or Lacey or some, one of the kids to me. She'll say, Do you know what your son did? So, I mean, when Jace is doing well, she, it's her son, but when he just broke a rule or broke something or disobeyed, now it's my son? Come on. Do you know what your son did? That's kind of like what, what God tells Moses here. 
He said, thy people, which thou brought us, brought us up out of Egypt. Yeah, they're yours, Moses. Look what they're doing. They've corrupted themselves. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 9. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation." God's intentions are to wipe out the people and start over with Moses. We know that Moses intercedes. He, he presents a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ here. And if we skip ahead in the chapter, we find out that while God does not destroy Israel, they do pay for their sins. 3,000 die as a result of this calf incident. But what I want to focus on is the fact that it's painfully obvious. God does not take it lightly that the people have tried to pair pagan practices into worship. It's no small thing to him. Why is that? Well, there's only one God, Jehovah. And as he's unlike any other, he's holy and he's pure. He's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy other than. Meaning, anything that you can think about, uh, about God, he is different than anything else. Anything that we know to be God, uh, he is other than. He's a jealous God. He has a right to be. For his creation then to take him lightly on any level is an insult to God. This is no small thing to him because worshiping God requires methods worthy of God. Worshiping God requires methods worthy of God. In other words, God is so unlike any other that or anything else that we encounter in our lives that our interactions with him they can't just be like normal everyday interactions do you, did you catch that he's so different than anything else in life that our interactions with all the other things out there they shouldn't be the same as our interactions with god that's how different he is that's how holy he is that's how other than he is the idea from Exodus 32 is there are certain elements that are not appropriate for worshiping God. He's that different. He's that holy. He's that other than. And last week, I preached that message about having the right affections and started with Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Those words were said by who? Deuteronomy, who wrote it? Moses. Toward the end of his life, years after God gave the Ten Commandments, Moses is telling Israel that our primary duty as followers of God is to love him above everything. Love is affection. Having the right affections toward God, those affections are foundational in our relationship with God. Affections and emotions are perfectly suitable when it comes to worshiping. Like Brother Jacob was trying to get us tonight to kind of break out of our shell a little bit. You know, when you think about the moment that you got saved, if it was down on my knees, man, be happy about that. If, if in that moment that you got saved down on your knees, you settled it all, we, it shouldn't take much coaching to get us excited about that. If when you think about it, uh, I settled it all and then I got saved and now, hallelujah, I got saved. You know, we're not trying to conjure up emotion. We're trying to just say that if that is true, then emotion should be natural. If it's settled everything in that moment, it should not be hard to get us to be emotional. 
But not all emotions are created equal. That means some emotions are fine in certain circumstances, but not necessarily for our interactions with God. You catch that again? We're talking about our interactions with God. And there are emotions that are suitable out there. Uh, If I watch a football game and I get excited, man, that's great. My team just scored a touchdown. That's great. I'm not saying that that kind of emotion is appropriate, though, in my interaction with a holy God. So to steal directly from my notes last week, I can quote myself, I think, without calling it, without, you know, claiming some kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There you go. See, I, I, don't, I can quote myself, okay? Serve God with emotion. Enjoy him. Pursue him. Be passionate about him, but be sure that the emotions you reserve for him are worthy of what you know of him. He deserves a different type of emotion than you give your favorite sports team. He deserves to have affection on a different level than you give your pet or your car. He deserves emotion on a different level even than you give other people in your life. He's God, the only God, your God, and he deserves love according to what you know of him. End quote. The idea tonight is similar to that concept with a different application. See, when it comes to worshiping God, he's so unlike anything else that our interactions with him ought to not be like anything else. One obvious application is the one Moses deals with here, idols, images. Painting a picture of a loved one is perfectly appropriate as a way for you to express your affection for that person, assuming you can do a good job, by the way. But you can't do that for God because he can't be measured by the human senses. It's impossible. It's so far below him, he does not take it lightly. One way we're given license to express our affection, though, toward God in in an appropriate way is through music. It's actually mentioned here in the passage. We read it earlier in verses 17 and 18. When they come down from the mountain, Josh hears the noise. Joshua hears the noise of the people shouting. He says to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. Oh, no, we're under attack. And Moses says, no, it's not the sound of war. It's the sound of singing. It's the noise of singing. Moses had a little insight into what's happening at the camp. Remember, God had told Moses to go back down because he said, here's what's going on. You need to get back. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Joshua hears the noise and to his ear, it sounds like a war cry. To Moses, it sounds like singing. Now, we don't know exactly what it sounded like, but if everything else they were doing was adopted from the pagan rituals of Egypt, we can imagine that the music being sung was as well. I doubt that they had built a calf, a molten calf like the gods of Egypt, but they were singing Amazing Grace. If their idea, their concept of pagan, of worship was pagan worship, they were probably singing music like they had heard in Egypt. And in the next verse, in verse 19, it says, And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. In the next verse, we're told, verse 19, they're dancing. In verse 25, it says they were naked. You can imagine the kind then, the kind of sensual music that accompanies those kind of activities. It should be obvious that this was not music appropriate for the one true holy God. That's what we're getting to. They were not using music that was worthy of the God that they were trying to lift up. 
that it sounded like a war about Borshout to Joshua is interesting because a lot of people, primarily Christians, they claim that the music doesn't matter as long as the lyrics are okay. But that's a silly notion. Honestly, only Christians are using that argument because they're trying to justify their music choices. Music itself sends a message it did to Joshua. I I read a quote from Aristotle. He once said, uh, wrote that music directly represents the passions or states of the soul, gentleness, anger, courage, temperance. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. But conversely, if he listens to the right kind of music, he will tend to become the right kind of person. Joseph uh, Maclis was a professor of of music at Queen's College and a graduate of Juilliard. In his book, The Enjoyment of Music, he wrote, music has been called the language of emotions. This is not an unreasonable metaphor for music like language aims to communicate meaning. You know, you'll hear a lot of Christians say, well, the music itself doesn't matter. As long as the lyrics are okay, then the rest is okay. David Tame, he wrote a book called The Secret Power of Music. And he writes, there's surely no doubt that music actually conveys very real and sometimes very specific emotional states from the musician to the listener. Like human nature itself, music cannot possibly be neutral in its spiritual direction. None of these men, to my knowledge, that I've quoted tonight were saved. But they all said the same thing. Music is the language of human emotion. Mike Coyle, he's a French horn virtuoso, world-renowned, and he's a Christian. And he's come up with a syllogism, which is a form of deductive reasoning. And he says this, not all emotions are good ones. Would you agree with that? Well, surely man and his emotions were created in the image of God. But man has fallen and with him has gone the purity with which he was created. Hate, when directed at sin, is good and acceptable. But when directed at a brother in Christ, it is sin. Anger is unacceptable except when the one who is angry is not sinning. An emotion like lust is never right. It's an adulteration of God-given emotion. Since music is an emotional language, and since some emotions are wrong for the child of God, then he says, then some music is wrong for the Christian. That's a man much smarter than me coming up through that deductive reasoning with that, but he's coming to that conclusion. Music conveys emotions. It sends a message that is as clearly understood as plain speaking. If you've ever wondered if music sends a message or conveys emotion, then play a certain kind of music around a child and see how he responds. I did not have to teach. There is certain music that when my children hear it, guess what starts shaking? And we have to say, no, no, no. What are you doing? We don't have to teach them that. It conveys something. I I mean, I can, and I might go through this exercise in a couple of weeks, but it does convey emotion. So the consideration is this. If every music, I'm sorry, if music conveys emotion and not every emotion is appropriate for the worship of the one true God, can we safely assume then that music that conveys certain emotion is not appropriate for worshiping God? Could we say that? You say yes or no. If you agree with that, say yes. Yes. Or amen. That's fine. I think it's a fair conclusion. But when you look across the modern church landscape, you realize that there are many who consider any music type appropriate for worship. 
I mean, every music style you can imagine is being used in churches today. And, and I'm not standing, I don't stand and answer for them. I stand and answer for Eastside Baptist Church. And I want you to know how I come to the conclusion or how we deal with the direction that we're going because if I'm answering for myself, I want to think biblically about this. I don't want to just say, well, everybody else is doing it and since they're all doing it, it must be okay, so I'm going to do it. I mean, my parents taught me from an early age that just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean it's okay. And then they would say that famous scenario, if everyone else was jumping off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff too? So uh, maybe I should retitle this message. You know, we ought to be careful to assume that just because it's popular and just because everybody else is listening to it and everyone else is utilizing it, does it mean that that music is appropriate for worshiping a holy other than God? They claim that pulling the world's music styles across into the church setting and then that changing the lyrics, though, they, that that will draw people in because they're using using the music that the masses like to worship God. But they haven't stopped to ask the question, is it appropriate for worshiping God? Is it? I mean, I think about pop music. Pop music is short for popular music. Pop music is a result, and you could read this history, it, it, it's, it's well documented, pop music is a result of pop or mass culture. Pop or mass culture came about with the invention of technologies that allowed the culture to become connected in a large-scale form. It, in the early days, it was the radio. Or it became television. Now it's the internet. And, and by that, I mean, it used to be that there were pockets of culture. It used to be that culture was in this region of the country or even in this village a village of people that were just around each other for most of their lives, they had their own culture. You go to the next village over and they have their culture, their different accents and, and different music styles and, and different dress styles and, and culture was really isolated to regions, to physical regions, to locations. Well then pop culture or, or technology allowed culture to be connected widespread across the board. And now suddenly things that were only popular maybe in New York City because a radio is starting to make its way into homes all across the country. Now the music that is popular there is being streamed, not streamed, but it's being sent into the radios in, in living rooms all around the country. And our culture started to become connected. And smart people looked at that and said, oh, we could capitalize on this. It used to be that when we would try to market something, we could only do it regionally, mostly. And, and then, you know, with the, I even think about the, uh, the catalogs that people used to send out. And, you know, you would go and you look through a catalog and, and you would order it. And, you know, that was one way to mass market your products. Well, it became easier once the radio came about. You could just talk about it. And then people, families in their living room were listening to it. So smart people said, let's capitalize on pop culture. Let's capitalize on mass culture. And let's try to get our, our product into the brains and into the hands of everywhere. Not just in this region anymore, but all over the country. So they started using the, the radio to do that. And along the way, 
It changed music. They started creating pop music, popular music. It was created to appeal to the masses. It was created to make money. Pop music is an assembly line product. They thought, let's package this, we'll market this, we can create music that everyone likes. So you tell me, if music is going to be marketed to appeal to the masses and make lots of money, which is what they're doing, it's a machine these days. Some 13-year-old girl that posts a video of herself singing on YouTube two weeks later can be on the biggest stage in the country. Her, her CD or her first album, her, her single can be uh, online and be streamed and have thousands, hundreds of thousands of downloads just like that. And she doesn't have to have much training at all. You just have to be able to market that. The pop culture, uh, the pop culture, uh, mass culture appeal suddenly becomes a marketing tool. So you tell me, if music is going to appeal to the masses and make lots of money, to what do you think it appeals? Do you think that they're targeting the spiritual part of every home in our country? Do you think they're saying, okay, we want to create music that exalts and uplifts God? Or do you think that they will create music that appeals to the flesh of those listening to the music? I can guarantee you that at their heart or at their motive is not exalting God. They've created music to appeal to the flesh, to get people moving. They've created music that appeals to people, makes them happy, makes them move, makes them enjoy it. It's the flesh. So if pop music exists solely to appeal to the masses, it was created for entertainment purposes. Hey, I know this is getting heavy. I don't want you to, to, I don't want to miss you along the way or lose you along the way. I'm trying to kind of reason this out here. We've got a lot of movement tonight. I'm going to ask you just to focus in. If pop music exists solely to appeal to the masses, it was created for entertainment purposes. Can we agree on that? It was created then to feed the flesh. I mean, it's not like the world is out there looking for something to feed their spirit. Pop music sends a message. Music should appeal to the flesh and music should be entertaining. That's what they're saying. So then, let me just ask then as we wrap this up, is that type of music then appropriate in a worship setting? If it was literally created to appeal to the masses, if it was literally created to sell and to make money, do you think then that we could take that same music style and bring it into a worship setting and it would be appropriate for a holy other than God? I don't think that we could justify that because the target of that music is the flesh. And because using it in a worship setting would send the underlying message that worship is as trivial as the music tastes of the masses. Let me say that again. We wouldn't want to send that signal that the worship of our God is as trivial and wavering as the musical tastes of the masses. When you think about the trivial, sensual nature of pop music or popular music, it's amazing that churches everywhere would think that's appropriate for use when worshiping God. Does all this sound familiar to our text? It's the same concept as the Israelites adopting pagan practices of Egypt and trying to incorporate them 
into the worship of Jehovah. In the same way, the music of Egypt was created to stimulate this frenzy of flesh. Pop music, if you've ever seen a concert or been to a concert or sat and watched people listen, it it creates hysteria. It's created to stimulate the flesh, entertain the masses. And I'm not even talking about the, I'm not even in and of itself talking about the value of that kind of music or the right or wrong of that kind of music tonight. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I think that we could talk about that at some future point, and we have to just be careful of it. But what I'm talking about is, should we, as a church, as Eastside Baptist Church, have a clear conscience saying, oh, that's the music that sells to the masses, that's the music that makes all the money, that's the music that really gets people worked up at football games, let's change the lyrics to that music, bring it into the house of God, and use it to worship God. That's the point I'm trying to make tonight, is that we ought to be careful of thinking that the pagan worship practices, could we call pop music, most of pop music and rock music, and country music and all that's out there, could we say that at its core it is godly or pagan? And I'm not even, again, you might say, well, I have these songs on my phone and and these songs don't talk about anything bad, they just make me happy. I understand that. I'm using general, general terms here tonight. Could we say that at its core, though, if you were to define pop music as godly or sensual, would you say it's sensual or godly? You'd say it's sensual. If you were to define pop, rock music as godly or sensual, which one would you define it as? Country music. I don't want to step on any toes. Sensual. Sensual, pagan. Not godly. So for us to assume as Eastside Baptist Church that we could then, that would translate well in a worship setting. Well, that's, that sounds like Exodus 32 has something to help us with. To protect us from that mentality. So this is why we need music that is set apart. I read a book called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. I don't condone the book necessarily across the board, but he makes some good points. His doctrine wouldn't be just like ours, and I hope you'll understand that. But he does make some points about music He says it's not about lawfulness, it's about appropriateness. See, the meeting between the creator and his creatures is a remarkable occasion. Is it remarkable to you that God would meet with you? Absolutely. Do you think fleshly music created to entertain the masses seems appropriate for that encounter? If he is Alpha and Omega, timeless and eternal, do you think the music that accompanies a sensual song that would fit in a bar setting, regardless of its lyrics, do you think that music would be appropriate for worshiping God? You, I mean, you don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think. Do you think music that when played at a dance or on a car radio works the flesh into a frenzy? Do you think that music is fitting for people who are meeting with God on a spiritual level, especially considering that the flesh is the greatest enemy we have on the path to spirituality? Is it lawful to make our services feel like going to a movie or attending a club or having coffee at a coffee shop? 
Is it lawful? Could we do that? And, and it just happens and um, God's not going to come. And Is it lawful? Yeah, it's probably lawful. But is it appropriate? That's the question I want us to think about tonight. Is it appropriate? Because when I stop and think about a holy other than God, it starts to limit what is truly appropriate for that encounter with him. Remember the idea from Exodus 32. There are certain elements that are not appropriate for worshiping God. To subject him to music that's fleshly in nature, I think is an affront to his holiness. His music should be sacred. It should be set apart. It should be worthy of him. And I'm not saying that every part of our music service in, in, our, in our churches reaches those heights. But this philosophy drives how I would like to approach the music service at Eastside Baptist Church. And what I'm thankful for, for is, is I stepped into a church with people that already are already practicing things this way. I'm not standing up here telling you because we need to fix a bunch of things. I'm trying to help you to think about why we do it this way. So that we can all be on the same page. Because someday we're probably going to be tempted along the way to start to adopt some of the practices into this setting. And, and you and I are each other's accountability. If we're all thinking correctly about this, then the chances of something sneaking in that wouldn't be appropriate for that setting, they would go far down, the chances would, would go down if we're all thinking the same way. So music that's worthy of him. If that's our mindset, it protects us in a few ways. It, it protects our song choices. The congregationals, I, I think about the hymns. And I don't, I'm not even saying that I love every hymn in our hymnal. I'm not saying that. I, I like most of them. But if you think about hymns, though, that, is, that is the one category of music that most closely fits the definition of set apart. Where, at, where else can you go in our culture and you're just like, man, if they would just stop playing those hymns over and over and over. Can you think of one other place in our culture that you go to where the hymns are just constantly being used? Now, I'm not even saying that some of the hymns are my preference. I'm not even saying this has nothing to do with the style that I prefer even. I'm not saying, I'm not even telling you what my style that I prefer is. I'm not saying that. I'm simply, let's just stop and look at it objectively. Where else in our culture do you go and hear, oh, wow, there, oh there's another hymn, there's another hymn, there's another hymn. They're just using a piano and they're using an organ and they're singing hymns. Where? You're not going to find it many places. And to me, that is one category of music that is truly set apart. It's unique. There's really no other song type like the hymn out there anywhere. And we don't just use hymns. We use uh, some more, uh, more modern, when I say modern or contemporary, I mean the, the time frame in which it's written We'll use music that's written more recently. Our special music, I'm not sure what year the song that Brother Ken sang tonight it was written, probably in the last 20 years, uh, with a name like his, uh, the song that the choir sang tonight, 2000. Some of you kids are like, whoa, that's ancient. So within 20 years, there are times where a special, special is sung, a song that's written in the last 
few weeks. And it may happen. Uh, But if it has a worldly style or sound, we start to really vet that. We start to filter that. We can assume if it comes from a certain artist or if it comes from a certain place that its target is likely the flesh and we need to determine in those moments if it's, if it's appropriate for worshiping God. It'll affect, uh, if this is our mindset, it'll affect our song choices. It will also affect our preparation. You know, you think about meeting with a holy God. You think about meeting with a, a holy God who is worthy of any, diff, something different than anything else I give anywhere else. And if I'm the one preparing special music, or I'm leading this choir, or I'm preparing to play on an instrument, I don't approach that the same way. If I am meeting with a holy God, that interaction should be holy other than, and I should prepare with excellence in mind. Because music worthy of God, it would be excellence. It would affect our participation in congregationals. And that's a role every person in this room has. Is your heart and your and effort in singing, is it worthy of him? When, we're talking about music worthy of God. So the way that you sing when you open a hymnal, are you singing in a way that you say that's worthy of God? I'm singing to the best of my ability, and I may not be able to carry a tune very well, but I'm singing with all... I think I may have just lost it here. Uh, I'm singing with all of my heart and I'm singing with, with power and I'm lifting up my voice and I'm trying to be convincing. You may not be in the choir and you may never stand up here, but let me encourage you, folks, you can, with your songbook, sing in a way that's worthy of God. Our response to the music. And you know, around here, it's a little different. Uh, in some churches, they clap. We don't necessarily clap here. If, if it's spontaneous, I'm not necessarily against that. But I think as a general rule, clapping, that is the world's response to a performance. So when we hear something that blesses us, or we want to be an encouragement, I think it's very appropriate for us to say the Bible response, which is amen. After Brother Ken sang that song tonight, I wanted to yell amen really loud, but I had already turned my microphone on, and I've learned that lesson before. Every time the choir gets done singing, well, I want to be the first one to say amen. Because it means I agree. It means let it be so. It's a response that's agreement with truth. And it's also, can I just say this, and I've said it before, but let me just encourage you. It's also extremely encouraging to the one that's doing the ministering, both music and preaching. It also, this mindset will affect our daily choices. And we'll talk about that more in the future. But if the music that you listen to is a constant feeding of the flesh, do you think giving the flesh that much control on a regular basis gives God what he's worthy of? And I'm not even up here drawing lines. I think as, as people with brains and Bibles, we should draw our own lines. Those lines that we have are in our conscience, that we're right with God and we, this is right, but, what I want, but I don't want you just to assume that just because you like it, that's the kind of music you should continually have as your steady diet. We, you know, we serve the one and only holy God. We cannot express him accurately in a drawing or a sculpture or an idol. But he does give us the opportunity. Listen. He does give us the opportunity to express truth about him and praise to him through music.
We must strive to be careful not to bring music to him that's unworthy of him. As an individual, whether it's participating in congregational singing or preparing for special music, responding to music that exalts the Lord or your daily music choices, how worthy of God is the music in your life? Does the influence of the pagan philosophy show up in any of those applications? If so, I'm encouraging you tonight to be careful. Because we know he doesn't take it lightly when his children utilize methods that are unworthy of who he is. Especially when it comes to worship. So tonight, again, I'm not even sure how to have an invitation. But we ought to, as Eastside Baptist Church, as the pastor of Eastside Baptist Church, setting the course and not even changing the course. Around here, we're striving to use music that's worthy of God. In all ways, not just the music itself, but the way that it's sung, the preparation, the song choices, our hearts getting involved, and I hope that you will, in your mind, think, that makes sense. It may go against everything you've ever heard, it may go against everything that you prefer, but let me just encourage you tonight to be open to the idea that when we meet with God, that's such a unique meeting, and it's one that is unlike any other. So if that's the case, then what would be worthy of that interaction? Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.